Welcome back to For the Defense. I'm David Oscar Marcus, and we have a bonus episode for you today, which strays a little bit from seasons one and two, where, as you know, we spoke only to criminal defense lawyers about their most fascinating trials. Well, today we have federal district judge Jed Rakoff from the Southern District of New York. And although he was a previous uh, defense lawyer and also prosecutor, he's now a sitting judge and he has lots of interesting and unique takes on the criminal justice system. He's written about them in his new book called Why Innocent People Plead Guilty. And what I love about the book and Judge Rakoff is he makes you think he's a thought provoking guy. He's an interesting guy. And so I thought it would be really neat to talk to him about our criminal justice system and the problems that we've discussed throughout seasons one and two of For the Defense. I want to thank David Leibowitz for coming up with the idea to interview Judge Rakoff. And thank you to Judge Rakoff for doing this. It's not every day that you can talk to a federal judge about the criminal justice system. So let's get right to it and talk to Judge Rakoff in For the Defense next. Well, this morning, I'm really excited. We have Judge Jed Rakoff on the podcast. And Judge Rakoff is a judge in New York in the Southern District of New York. And he's a former prosecutor and defense lawyer. We're not going to talk much about the former prosecutor part, but we'll talk about the former defense lawyer as you know, it's, there's so few defense lawyers on the bench. Um, and so Judge Rakoff is one of the few who has actually represented a real live person. Welcome to the show, Judge. Thanks very much. You make a, a very good point. Um, when I went on the bench, I think there were maybe two other federal judges who had had any meaningful criminal defense experience. Um, I'm very hopeful that the Biden administration will uh, change that number considerably. It's really needed. And and I know I'm jumping ahead here, but one of the suggestions that you had to fix some of the problems in the criminal justice system is we need people who are prosecutors to have served or will serve as criminal defense lawyers um, like they do in Britain. Yes, the, the I mean, my ideal proposal, which I doubt uh, uh, will uh, ever be enacted, but uh, I still like it, uh, would be for every prosecutor to spend six months out of every three years as a criminal defense lawyer for defendants in some other distant district, so there would be conflict, possibly. And the, uh, I think that would give uh, prosecutors who, frankly, largely run the present criminal justice system, um, much more balanced view uh, and able to appreciate uh, defenses and questions that they don't really uh, appreciate now. I want to also mention to everybody that Judge Rakoff just wrote this wonderful book, and it's called Why the Innocent Plead Guilty and the Guilty Go Free and Other Paradoxes of Our broken legal system. It's a wonderful book, and it's made up of essays that the judge has written over the years um, for the New York Review of Books. And we're going to talk a lot about this book during the podcast today, but I wanted to mention at the beginning and for everyone to get a copy, it's, 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 a, great, it's a great book for both prosecutors and defense lawyers alike. So um, I mentioned that at the beginning, but before we get to the book, Judge, 
I'm doing this interview at the end of March and you just concluded a trial um, during COVID times. And I think this was the second one you've done, right? Correct. I had one a month-long trial in November, and then this was three and a half weeks um, in March. And I was wondering if, if you could just tell us how those trials went, some of the precautions you took, some of the hurdles you had to face in doing the trial, because I know a lot of judges uh, are really interested and have been following uh, how you did those cases. So, um, fortunately, um, uh, my uh, court uh, had started planning long before COVID-19 for how we would deal with uh, crises of all sorts because um, the, uh, we had gone through a period uh, after uh, 9-11. Uh, my courthouse is just a few blocks from 9-11 when we had to shut down the courthouse and we wanted to avoid that in the future. And um, the result is that we were already uh, um, well on our way to figuring out how to make the court uh, run even during this pandemic. Uh, our courthouse never closed at any time during the pandemic. Uh, criminal trials, however, had to be spaced out. What we did was we took our four largest courtrooms and redesigned them so that the jury could be seated with uh, six feet between each juror, and they would wear masks. We uh, designed a plexiglass uh, this witness stand uh, with a um, machine that takes the air out of the courtroom so the witness could take off his or her mask and be seen and uh, their demeanor observed. Um, we had a similar plexiglass box for the questioner, so the questioner could take off his or her mask uh, and have a more, if you will, direct conversation with the witness. Um, the, uh, for the jury deliberations, we took one of our smaller courtrooms and again designed it so there would be uh, six feet of distance between each juror and then two very large screens so they could, um, we would send in a um, computer program with all the exhibits and uh, they could just uh, put them up on the screen as they uh, chose. Um, and frankly, uh, that part of it, I think maybe should be continued. I think that was a, a very helpful thing to the jurors. Um, of course, the, what we were most worried about was whether the jurors would be COVID scared, so to speak. Um, uh, and uh, uh, to an amazing extent, they were not. Uh, when we picked, uh, in each case, uh, I picked 12 jurors plus four alternates. And the um, uh, initially, almost no one raised a COVID concern. And I think the reason is because they were so <laughs> dying to get out of their apartments or houses and do something interesting. Uh, so, uh, but we did uh, in both trials, a uh, one juror uh, tested positive for COVID-19 and one juror was exposed to a close uh, uh, friend who was, uh, had, was tested positive in we had anticipated that might happen. So we took a break 
Uh, fortunately, in both cases, it occurred shortly before weekend. Um, so, uh, and then we had arranged uh, uh, to have a very high level COVID test done right at the courthouse of all the remaining jurors um, and with the results available in 15 minutes after the test. Um, so, and in both cases, uh, fortunately, uh, all the jurors tested negative and we were able to continue with the trial. Uh, had any of the jurors tested positive, that would have been uh, a more problematic situation. You know, it's interesting um, that the witness and the questioner were not wearing masks because the complaint I've heard most from defense lawyers is, you know, how can you cross-examine a witness wearing a mask? And in Miami, where I'm from, in state court trials have started up very slowly, um, but they don't have that that booth that you were talking about. And the witness is wearing a mask and the defense lawyers are objecting. Um, and it, it seems like it would be um, unfair to to require a cross-examination of a witness with a mask on. Well, without expressing my opinion on any issue that might come <laughs> yeah, up yeah, at some yeah, point, yeah, of course, of uh, course. The, as a former defense lawyer, I totally agree. I, I, I mean, it's very important for the jury to see the uh, demeanor of the witness. Um, uh, and uh, also, I think in any good cross-examination, there's a dramatic interplay between the lawyer and the witness that can only be achieved if you don't have masks. So uh, I, I uh, very much like the way we did it in my court. Um, you might ask, uh, did the lawyers have any trouble reading the jury? Right. Uh, because they were masked. So we did two things to uh, obviate that. First, we placed the defense counsel and defendants directly facing the jurors and quite close, about 12 feet away, um, whereas the government was facing the judge and uh, not as could not see the jury as easily. Um, and we did that with malice of forethought because uh, yeah. they, we knew that uh, uh, while both sides would like to read the jury, it was more important that the defense be given sure. that opportunity. Uh, and uh, I talked to the defense counsel after the um, uh, first trial, uh, and they said that uh, in a trial that long, they could read the jury pretty well. Um, you know, the, the first few days, it was harder to read them than if they hadn't been wearing a mask, but these were both long trials, and uh, they were able to read them pretty well uh, after a week or so. Um, the uh, only other thing that um, uh, I thought uh, we couldn't allow the jurors to go right up to the jury bar. And I know when I was at defense counsel, I, I always tried to do that to try to have the, you know, impact, if you will. And right. Um, and that we couldn't do because of, for obvious reasons. So they, they gave their summations from the, uh, uh, the little plexiglass box so they could be viewed and so forth. Sure. Um, I didn't think it made that much of a difference, but, uh, arguably there was a little difference. There. You know, as a, as a, just a footnote to your first trial, you had a Miamian up there, Matt Menchel. He and, was terrific. Uh, 
And, and Matt's a close friend, a funny, funny story. When I was a federal defender, an assistant federal defender, he was a prosecutor down here. And we tried a couple of cases against each other and we became uh, close friends after that. I, I tried my, my second trial uh, with him and I didn't know what I was doing. I gave an opening and I kind of overstated things uh, with, uh, with the jury and my client testified and he he uh, he called me out with the client. He said, "Your lawyer uh, kind of overstated things with the jury," and 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 my, uh, which I, I started sinking in my chair. I was I was uh, so embarrassed. And and my client, she was great. She said, um, "Give Mr. Marcus a break. It's his very first trial." <laughs> well, the uh, uh, Mr. Menchel had not appeared before me previously. Uh, I. Uh, and I told this to him as well. I thought he was just terrific, uh, uh, a really uh, excellent uh, lawyer. Uh, the jury convicted nonetheless, but it was a mixed verdict. There were two counts against his client. They acquitted uh, his client of the one that carried the more serious penalty and it convicted on the other. Uh, being a softy, I gave his client one year. Uh, uh, so uh, he did all right. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna talk about sentencing in a minute. He, he I guess he can claim credit for the acquittal, and his co-counsel can take the conviction. So, so <laughs> let's, that's uh, why it always works, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. I'm David Oscar Marcus, and we'll be right back in for the defense next. I'm glad Judge Rakoff recognized that Matt Menchel is a great trial lawyer. He was a really strong prosecutor. And he's a wonderful defense lawyer, someone I enjoy working with now and enjoy trying cases against when he was a prosecutor. It's also interesting that Judge Rakoff talks about not knowing Menchel before he tried a case up there. Whenever you try a case out of town, and I love trying cases out of town, you start with a clean slate. Most judges uh, wonder, who is this Miami lawyer coming into my district and, and start with a bit of skepticism but by the end of the trial, really appreciate good lawyering. And it's fun to try cases out of town. I remember my dad tried a case in Arizona and the judge invited him to dinner one night with the prosecutor. And the judge and the prosecutor thought this Miami lawyer wouldn't be able to handle the spicy food. They ordered the spiciest chicken wings available. And uh, my dad told me that he was choking uh, on those chicken wings, but held it in. Uh, because he didn't want to show any weakness to the judge or the prosecutor with the spicy food. The next day, the judge commented that he really appreciated that a Miami lawyer could handle that spicy food and, and respected him the rest of the way. I haven't had that experience, but it has been fun to try cases uh, all over the place, not just in Miami. Let's get back to Judge Rakoff in For the Defense next. Let's talk about the book. So, so I, I will say the first um, essay that I became aware of uh, of the book was, of course, why the innocent plead guilty, and and um, I, I have to say, Judge, it caused quite a stir among both defense lawyers, prosecutors, and and even judges. Um, you know, people in the system know it's true, although I think prosecutors and and judges don't like to admit it. Um, but people outside of the system are shocked when, when they hear about this phenomenon. And, and so I, I'd like to understand if you could explain the premise. What, why do innocent people plead guilty? And how did that happen? How did our system get to that point? So they plead guilty when all is said and done because they do a uh, 
cost-benefit analysis uh, and figure that uh, they would rather take the sure lesser penalty um, than the uh, possible much harsher penalty. And what really drives all this and drives mass incarceration as well are these very overly punitive laws that were passed in the 70s, 80s, and 90s uh, with mandatory minimums, career offenders, and the whole business. And um, the so uh, what does a prosecutor do? Well, in the federal system, they are obligated to charge in their indictment every crime they think they can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And so if it's a drug case, for example, um, there will often be uh, counts that will carry up to uh, 30 or 40 years mandatory minimum because both the weight of the drugs and the use of a gun and so forth um, was involved, even though there were like 13 people and your right. guy may be, uh, right. you know, a relatively low level uh, guy. Um, so your guy tells you he's innocent. Uh, when I was a criminal defense lawyer, all my clients initially told me they were innocent. Uh, right. And about half of well, some of them are telling the truth and some were not. I don't want to put statistics on it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but any event, you go to meet with the prosecutor and you say, you know, guilty or innocent, my guy's a schnook. Uh, give, him a, give him a break. Right. Uh, and the prosecutor says, okay, we'll give him a five-year count, uh, but he's got to plead guilty in the next two weeks. And you say, well, I, I've, you know, I've got to investigate. Uh, okay, I'll give you four weeks, but no more because uh, I got to move on with the case. Right. So the, uh, you go back to your client and you do a little investigation and you say, you know, there, there's, there's at least one witness out there who supports your position that you weren't involved. Um, and, and the client says to you, well, what are my chances uh, if I go to trial and you say, I can't tell you that, uh, uh, you know, they're not zero, I, but they're certainly not 100% either. Um, uh, and then uh, after thinking about it, uh, frequently he will say, well, I'll take the plea. And in the federal system, since they don't allow Alfred pleas, you say to him, well, I can't uh, have you plead guilty if you're not guilty. Oh, yeah, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. But maybe he is and maybe he's not. And the statistics, just to not sorry to ramble on, but the no, no, this is uh, great. The, the the innocence project of the 265 people that they have now exonerated through DNA, all of which they proved had nothing to do with very serious crimes, murder and rape, most of them. Um, 10% of those pled guilty to because mostly because they were facing the death penalty or life imprisonment without parole, and they wanted to get something better than that. Um, and uh, the, there's also something called the National Registry of Exonerations, which uh, traces all exonerations since I think about 1989, and it's up to 2,400, and 10% of those are people who pled guilty. So if you say, okay, maybe those, that's not a random sample, let's be conservative, let's take 5% as the real figure, there are 2 million people in jail. So that means there's 100,000 people right now in prison who were factually innocent of the crimes they were charged with and right. that they pled guilty to. Right. And, and I think that's a pretty conservative number because that's 
factually innocent, as you say. That doesn't even address, you know, the cases where there's a real legal challenge um, where people might say the statute doesn't criminalize this. And and the prosecutor says, listen, if you fight, you're not going to get the third point for acceptance. You're not going to be able to cooperate. You're not going to be able to do all these things. And so they end up not challenging the statute's coverage of their conduct. Um, and I, I think there's a huge number, especially in, in, um, in white collar cases, which we'll talk about in a moment, where the conduct is unclear whether it's even criminal. Um, you know, we see Bridgegate and other cases coming uh, absolutely, out of the Supreme Absolutely, absolutely right. Absolutely yeah. right. And and um, it would be good for the system of law right. for those cases to go to trial and clarify the law in those areas. Okay. Um, and that doesn't happen. The, the statistics, as I'm sure you know, are that in the federal system, 97% of the defendants plead guilty, almost all th- pursuant to plea bargains. And it varies a little bit from state to state, but overall, it's about 98% for the states combined. So very the risks few- have become too high to, to go to trial. So, so even if you have a good legal challenge, even if you're factually innocent, if you were to lose a trial, you're going to get crushed by most judges. And the, the, I mean, that's another whole thing. Um, I made a practice, although I, I ended it for a reason, I'll tell you in a minute. I made a practice for a few years of telling a defendant at the beginning, at the arraignment, um, the, uh, you, of course, need to consider whether you want to plead guilty or go to trial. Uh, but I will tell you in advance, your sentence will be the same, whichever way you go. The trouble fulfill it because the I was thinking of what the sentence would be if the guy pled guilty or went to trial on the things charged in the indictment. Right. But of course, the plea bargain was off into a much lower uh, amount. So it was not strictly accurate. So I don't say it anymore. But um, the uh, I do think uh, this is a whole separate subject, but I think uh, the in addition to these mandatory minimums and career offender statutes, the guidelines, even though they're now discretionary, still play a very punitive role, much too punitive role. We're going to talk about that in a moment, but I'll say this, you know, most people ask criminal defense lawyers, you know, at the cocktail parties, how do you represent the person (laughs) who did this? And I, I always respond, you know, it's much harder when the person is sitting across from me and says, listen, I didn't do it or I want to fight. And you have to explain the risks to that person and what the system will do to that person if they have the courage to fight. That's why um, it's much harder, I think, as a criminal defense lawyer to, to have that discussion with the innocent person or the person who wants to fight. The guilty person's easy. You're going to mostly work out a deal. As you say, 97, 98% of cases uh, resolve themselves. So if the guilty person comes in, you know, that person's going to end up pleading guilty. That's an easy case most of the time. It's the innocent person that's hard because you have to have those real discussions about risk reward. Yeah, there's no question about it. And um, uh, uh, of course, uh, the, the classic answer to why, how can you defend those people uh, is usually we're champions of liberty. We're the ones who keep the system honest and all like that. That's very true. But it's also true that we're the only hope for the person who is actually innocent, but who looks to the public and everyone else like he was guilty. Um, 
and it takes uh, courage to be a good defense lawyer. I, I uh, could never be more proud of the years I spent as a criminal defense lawyer. I really thought um, this is what um, uh, the law is really all about. Well, I think the law, I agree with you, of course, but I, I think one of the things that's so frustrating for, I think, criminal defense lawyers, and I would hope prosecutors and judges too, is that there are so few trials now. You know, the system, as you point out in your book, used to be a system of trials. And even after most cases went to trial, even throughout the 70s and up until the guidelines, at least 20% of cases went to trial. That was a pretty good number, not great, but pretty good. Now we're at 3%. I mean, Judge, what can we do to, to fix this? Because it's a real problem. I think it's, it's the reason innocent people are 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 in trouble. It's the reason our system is in trouble. Is there's no trials left, and so yeah. how do we do? How do we get trials back? The short answer is repeal all those terrible laws. I mean, that's that's what changed. You you if you look at the statistics, you'll see as each of these laws was passed, immediately there was a decrease in the jurisdiction uh, in the number of trials, and with the next law, it went down further. So it was it was a perfect correlation. Um, so the, the only, in my view, the only real fix would be to repeal all these laws and bring back laws that are not nearly as punitive and not nearly as mandatory. Um, short of that, um, I get to try more trials than then I'm going to brag for a second here, uh, <laughs> than any other judge in my court. And there are 40 judges in my court. And um, uh, the reason uh, is uh, I make it clear to the defendant and his lawyer from the very outset um, that um, I am delighted if they go to trial, that I think the system benefits if they go to trial. Uh, and uh, they shouldn't have to worry about uh, my slamming them or anything like that. Um, uh, I'll give you just one example. Uh, I never apply the guideline increase for alleged perjury at trial by the defendant. Um, the uh, I think, frankly, it's unconstitutional. I think it is a it it uh, uh, chills the right of a defendant to take the stand because uh, uh, if he takes the stand, uh, one uh, guy, the judge sitting up there, is going to determine whether he lied or not. Uh, and uh, on that basis, uh, will uh, increase his penalty. Um, and so uh, uh, I always let counsel know uh, there will be no penalty uh, under the guidelines. Uh, if your guy takes a stand, regardless of whether I think he's telling the truth or not. You know, that, that's an important point. And I'll say this, um, many judges, you know, there's lots of counts in, in these cases that go to trial. And if a defendant testifies and is acquitted of a bunch of counts, judges will still apply the obstruction enhancement. And I always argue to judges, well, I mean, obviously the jury had a, believed him on a lot of stuff here um, and they'll still obstruct him um, for for testifying, it seems crazy to me. Yeah, I learned that the hard way in my first criminal defense trial, uh, 
where I got an acquittal of 18 out of 19 counts. And the judge still slammed them on number 19. <laughs> and and so. that's another, you know, it's another point that most people in the public do not realize. And you can be held responsible for acquitted conduct, um, punished for testifying. And you tell, you know, I tell my mom these things and she, she doesn't believe me. She says, no, no, there's no way. Uh, if you're acquitted, the judge can take that into account at sentencing. And, and, and um, I mean, to me, that's an easy fix, but the Supreme Court hasn't done it yet. I think Congress should fix that. Congress definitely should fix it. The Sentencing Commission could fix some of this. Uh, I don't want to overstate that. Um, and of course, they've been without a majority for uh, what, the last two or three years, so they haven't been able to do anything, but right. now that can change. Um, the, the, uh, I, it, it totally boggles my mind that they place such emphasis on drug cases, on the weight of the drug, and such emphasis on white-collar cases on the amount of the loss. Makes no I sense. Mean, this, is, this is a human being in front of you. you got to find out what he's like, what motivated him, uh, what, you know, there, there are so many factors. And yet, 70% uh, of the guideline calculation in drug cases is the weight of the drug, and 70% of the calculation in white-collar cases is the amount of the loss. And to me, that makes no sense. It, it, it makes no sense for so many reasons. One reason is, for example, to, to use the loss, I mean, the numbers were sort of plucked out of thin air. Why does, if you steal 700,000, it gives you X amount of points? And if you steal 900,000, you get two more points. Why? I mean, it, uh, there's no explanation. And actually, that's true. The guidelines in many other respects, you know, how do they decide two points for this, three points for that, one point for that? Uh, so uh, my guess is, they take little slips of paper and they say, you pick one, you pick one. <laughs> well, not really, but uh, the, it's not a rational process. So, so let's talk about some ideas to fix it. You have some uh, in your book and, and I'll throw out some. One, one idea, and we talked about this at the very beginning, is to have prosecutors sit as defense lawyers, at least for some time, uh, as as they do in Britain. And I have always said, you know, before a prosecutor should prosecute, they should visit the jail for a couple hours, sit in a cell for a couple hours and see before they ask for eight years. I mean, if, you know, they would go crazy without their phone for 30 minutes, I think, if they had to sit in one of those cells. <laughs> so it's interesting because uh, I always have my law clerks visit the federal jail, which is right across the street from, from my court. And uh, I always tell the guy who gives them the tour, who uh, a fellow I've known for some years now, be sure to show them uh, the shoe, the uh, <laughs> right. solitary confinement, right? Uh, because then they'll get a sense of what jail really is like. Uh, so, uh, and otherwise, by the way, uh, uh, the, the when they give the tour for like you know dignitaries and so forth, they never show them. Uh, the, the show. <laughs> no, because it's scary. I mean, what one of the thoughts that I've always had is that we should try to make the criminal system a little bit more like the civil system. In other words, let's have more discovery, depositions. Florida, by the way, is one of the few states that allows depositions in state court and, and in criminal court. And it works. You have much less Brady violations. Both sides get to see the strengths and weaknesses of the case. Um, and, and it seems to work. I also think, you know, we should have more 
motions to dismiss, motions for summary judgment. Of course, none of those really happen in federal criminal cases. And I think that's part of the problem. It is really, if, if you were a man from Mars and you came and looked at our system, you would say, I don't understand this. In civil cases where it's just money involved, you have an unbelievable amount of discovery. Uh, in criminal cases where it's a person's liberty at stake, you have very restricted, limited discovery. Um, and uh, it, it does, it makes no sense. The, uh, there is the, if you make this argument, uh, someone on the other side will say, well, witnesses need to be protected and uh, they're, they're often very nervous and they, you know, but that's handled through keeping their identity secret. I mean, there are many ways to handle that. And frankly, that never comes up in white collar cases. It's just, you know, other kinds of cases. I, I always um, smile when I hear those concerns brought up by prosecutors, because in cases where there is obstruction uh, or violence, there's ways to deal with that. But what is that in 1% of the cases less? I mean, the vast majority of cases, witnesses aren't tampered with. Um, if anything, the, the one side that can offer the witness something is the prosecution, right? They can offer them <laughs> their their liberty. I, I will say this. I don't know if you know um, Judge Zlock from the Southern District of Florida. Um, he, I, by he, name, but I, I don't know him personally. Yeah, he's the former chief judge here. Conservative guy. Um but he wrote an opinion called Singleton back in the early 90s. And he said, I find that the giving of prosecution witnesses their liberty it violates the bribery statute. And he says, so in my courtroom, no more 5Ks, no more offering witnesses reductions in their sentences. Witnesses are witnesses and neither side should be able to offer them anything. Now, of course, that that got overturned by the. <laughs> I was going to say how how many data seconds were there before the <laughs> reversal? <laughs> right. I mean, but but it, you know, as uh, we all know, it got reversed, but it does have some pull to it, right? Like we defense lawyers can't offer a witness something, and prosecutors can not only offer them something, but offer them their liberty. It seems yeah. crazy. They they um. Uh, as I say, I was a prosecutor before a defense counsel, and I like, very much like that job too. And um, the, but you don't have the same balance. A typical federal prosecutor lease is someone who's maybe two years out of law school. They are learning it as they do it, so to speak, but they're learning it from one side. They're, the people they're talking to are the agents and their fellow AUSAs. And unconsciously, that makes them much more rigid uh, uh, than they really should be and much less open to reasonable arguments from defense counsel uh, and reasonable questions about their own case. Um, right. So uh, it is a uh, that, that uh, I would like to see solved, but I'm not optimistic about it. Right. <laughs> Let, let's let's move to another chapter in your book, which I found fascinating, the death penalty chapter. Um, one of the crazy facts in our system, and it seems people are willing to live with this, is that innocent people will be executed. There is no question about it. There's no debate about it. That happens. Should we tolerate a system 
where innocent people are executed. And I throw that softball to you, Judge, knowing that you wrote an opinion back in 2002 saying absolutely not. So tell us about that. So uh, that was, uh, in many respects, one of the more difficult opinions I ever had to write. Um, I had uh, uh, begun as uh, a supporter of the death penalty, uh, frankly, because uh, my older brother was murdered and in cold blood. And uh, there was a time I couldn't talk about this, but now I can. And, um, uh, you know, if, if you had asked me uh, six months or even five years after that event, I would say, fry the guy. He doesn't deserve to live. Sure. sure. Um, the What changed my mind uh, was the very point you're making at the Innocence Project using DNA, really a, a marvelous development, uh, proved conclusively that there were people on death row who were factually innocent and but for the DNA test would have unquestionably been executed. Um, and the, uh, 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 that opened my eyes to the fact how of how imperfect our system can be and how we have to make uh, amends to account for that imperfection. And so in 2002, I held the federal death penalty unconstitutional, saying since there is, as we now know, a meaningful possibility that someone who's sentenced to death will eventually be able to prove their innocence, uh, it basically is a violation of due process to put them to death. Um, and I got there through my reading of a Supreme Court case called Herrera, um, and I still think I, I read it right. That was a case where um, there were four justices on each side, and the swing vote was Justice O'Connor, who said, uh, it's, if you're actually innocent, it's never too late to raise that. Uh, right. Whereas Justice Scalia, uh, uh, who was writing the four-person plurality opinion, said, "Yeah, so we lose a few innocent people." Uh, <laughs> the uh, so um, uh, the uh, uh, I knew when I wrote that opinion that it would likely be reversed because I didn't think the courts were ready for it yet. But I think. Slowly but surely, the courts, including the Supreme Court, are moving um, against the death penalty. Now, the reason appointees we don't know yet, um, right. but uh, you know they've they've cut back on the death penalty for adolescents, for uh, persons of mental disabilities, and so forth. Um, and Virginia, of all places, that's right. <laughs> the heartland right. of the Confederacy just that, uh, just did away with the death penalty. Uh, that, so I think right. the long term prognosis is good. Although at the end of the Trump presidency, there was a rush um, oh, yeah, to well, do some executions with in the federal the, system. The, um, uh, <laughs> wait, I, since as a federal judge, I shouldn't talk politics. Uh, I won't say. Uh, anything about that barbarity. Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, and and the Supreme Court just granted cert in the Boston uh, murder case from, from the marathon. 
And, you know, th that case, um, the First Circuit, of course, said no death penalty for him and, and, and struck the death penalty in the Supreme Court just took cert. So you're, you're more optimistic than I am about it. I, I have concerns. And I guess my question to you, Judge, is for your optimism, what do you think the, the deciding argument will be? Is it your argument that innocent people are being executed? Is it a morality argument that will have the most effect? Is it um, where, how are we going to get rid of the death penalty? So I think the way the Supreme Court will ultimately get rid of it is this something of a charade that they use from time to time, which says uh, every uh, state and country in the world has concluded it's wrong. Uh, right. And of course, except you know, for the 20 countries they didn't mention or the 30 states they didn't mention. But uh, the, you know, that's right. the approach they've taken in, in these cruel and unusual punishment cases. Um, yeah, but I think that's the easiest path for them to sure. take. Um, uh, I, I still think my argument was correct, uh, but I, uh, whether I think Justice Breyer would vote for my argument, but I'm not sure anyone else. Well, if I had a vote, you have mine, but, but I don't, unfortunately. <laughs> um, let, let's talk about one. Oh, is that area. right? Oh, I'm so disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe one day. You're listening to For the Defense. We'll be right back. It's just so upsetting to me that we have a system that allows for innocent people to be executed. We should applaud Judge Rakoff for trying to put an end to this. I wish more judges would take a stand. Unfortunately, it looks like the judiciary hasn't been able to stop innocent people from being executed. So what are we to do? Well, there's a wonderful institution called the Innocence Project run by Barry Sheck. And Barry Sheck and the Innocence Project stops innocent people from being executed. And so I would urge everyone who's interested in stopping that from happening, from donating and getting active in the Innocence Project. It's a wonderful, wonderful group. In any event, let's get back to Judge Rakoff and other issues with our criminal justice system in For the Defense. Next. Um, I'll talk about one area that I disagree with you on, and that is um, in, in your book, you talk about going after more high-level executives. Now, it's interesting to me that you, you say that because we do, you do acknowledge, of course, that we have this mass incarceration problem, and, and, and yet you, you call for more prosecutions of high-level executives. So, so why is that? Well, uh, for several reasons. The first is, uh, I think any realistic view of the American legal system is that we have one law for the rich and another law for the poor. Our law for the poor is very punitive. Our law for the rich is uh, leaning into the point of, of almost non-existence. Um, so that's a problem right there. Secondly, um, when major financial frauds are uh, accomplished, they bring much greater pain and suffering than the guy who just robs a bodega or something like that. Um, you know, these are crimes uh, that, that lead to huge losses, unemployment, you name it. And back in the day, uh, the Department of Justice used to go after 
the people who actually were responsible for those crimes, like the CEOs of Enron and WorldCom and Tyco, all of whom were prosecuted rather than the companies because it was they who made the final decisions to commit those crimes. Now, the Department of Justice, and this goes back now about 20 years, both Democrats and Republicans, they take the easy way out. Uh, you know, it takes two or three years to make those cases against CEOs. You can make a case against a company in no time at all, at least in the federal system, because the federal system has automatic responding as superior. So if the janitor committed a crime, but he did it for the benefit of the That's company, right. it's imputed That's to right. the, the company. So you got the company, you know, by the short um, uh, uh, you just, the, what you do is you work out a plea bargain. If you think the company is not that bad, you give them a deferred prosecution. If you think the company right. is bad, you get a great big fine. You hold your press conference. And the person who actually committed the crime gets off totally scot-free. And that doesn't seem right to me. I agree with that, of course. If, if the person who committed the crime they shouldn't get off scot-free. They should be punished, obviously. But I see the problem as trying to prove that a certain executive did what he did with bad intent. In other words, he wanted to cause X and so to happen, or he did did whatever he did um, with some criminal intent. I find, at least in my experience, that most executives aren't there trying to figure out how to do something with bad purpose. They're, they're really uh, good people, most by and large. Um, and so, so that's especially those I that have. pay your bills. They, yeah, uh, absolutely, <laughs> those those are the best ones, of course. Uh, those are the best ones, of course. So here's what I think about them. every case is different. Um, of course, the the um, but um, I represented a number of uh, uh, high level white collar individuals, and I know exactly what you're saying. These were not bad people, but. Very, very often they became aware of the misconduct that was going on. And that was the moment of truth when they chose to go along with it. They were in a position to stop it. They chose not to do so. Mm -hmm. um, there's in the financial crisis that led to the Great uh, Recession a few years ago, uh, the uh, CEO of Citibank was uh, took gave testimony in a congressional hearing, and he basically said, uh, when the music is playing and everyone's dancing, uh, it's very hard to say, stop the music. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And that's, I think, exactly what the situation was for many higher-level people. So, yes, were they evil crooks of a, a, you know, of a mob sort? No, but they made a conscious decision not to stop the fraud that was going on, and that's a crime. You know, uh, Senator Warren has, has obviously been a big proponent of going after more executives. And she, uh, one of her platforms when she was running for president was, we should lower the mens rea requirement for executives to make it gross negligence so that if they should have known what was going on or if they if they were negligent about what was going on, they should be held criminally responsible. I think that's a, a disaster. Um, yeah, to, I, to, I to, don't. To I don't that. agree. I'm an admirer of Senator Warren in many respects, but I don't agree with that. 
you know, fundamental. I teach first year criminal law at Columbia Law School. And, you know, the first thing we learn is mens rea. Uh, And, you know, and it's all about applied morality. If the guy consciously chose to do something wrong, he goes to prison. If he consciously uh, thought he was doing the right thing, he gets off. Uh, And if he was negligent, you sue him civilly. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, or, or the SEC, for example, in securities cases can impose, uh, you know, limitations on uh, his right. ability to be a stockbroker or the like. The, the, those are penalties that fit the situation. I, I wonder, you talk about how we used to go after folks like the head of Enron and so on. And, and then we stopped. Are things getting better again? Has the pendulum started to swing back or is it, are we still in this, uh, you know, let, let the executives go and go after the company stage? I haven't seen much indication the pendulum has swung back. It was beginning to swing back at the very end of the Obama administration when Sally Yates, who I'm also a big fan of, came out with the so-called Yates Memorandum uh, saying, in effect, uh, give us your individuals. Um, right. Right. But then the Trump administration came along and that became a dead letter. Uh, and uh, the uh, I haven't seen it. The, the one exception is you do see in cases brought against uh, foreign entities, often the individuals are named. That's okay. something of a charade too. The likelihood that you'll ever get those people is about zero, but, uh, but might right. as well throw it in because it looks good. Uh, so, so, so the paradox that I see is, is that, you know, yes, go after more executives, but your sentencings of executives are things that criminal defense lawyers uh, embrace. I, I point to Richard Adelson, the the COO of Empath. You wrote you wrote a sentencing opinion in that case that you know every criminal defense lawyer cites in every sentencing memo, um, which is you know that that sentencing is the most sensitive and difficult task for a judge. And you called the sentencing guidelines patently absurd on their face and that they've run amok. And you ended up sentencing the executive to three and a half years. Now, prosecutors say, well, that's not enough of a penalty. It's not enough of a deterrent. So, so how do you respond to those prosecutors? So there are several responses. First, by the way, the guideline in that case was life imprisonment. I mean, just, just crazy. Uh, crazy. Another, another evidence of how bad the guidelines are. Um, the government wanted a measly 20 years. Uh, <laughs> right. yeah. um, every study that I've seen by criminologists suggests that um, very modest sentences can have full deterrent effect in white-collar cases. Now, I want to be cautious there because it's very hard to measure this kind of thing, and a responsible criminologist will always have in their preface something about you know, we looked at the following 14 factors, but there may be, you know, 10 others out there that we just couldn't measure. Nevertheless, um, the, uh, all those studies go one way. Uh, they all suggest that modest penalties could do the job. Um, there's also something that was well-established 100 years earlier, which is that the biggest deterrent is catching someone quickly. Um, That's right. The, uh, but... 
putting that aside, um, I've, I've, and and in you know I've been on the bench twenty five years now. Uh, I was thirteen when I went on, and <laughs> the uh, 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 I have not seen any recidivism on the part of any of the white collar defendants, not even a violation of supervised release by any of the white collar defendants I send. Interesting. Um, so I take that as some confirmation, if you will, uh, that uh, short sentences can do the job in white collar cases. Those criminologists um, say basically that it's not the amount of time that deters, it's the fact that they got time. So so, you know, for, especially for white collar offenders, by the way, if they get some prison time, that typically deters uh, both specific and general deterrence, by the yeah. way. It's, I it's think not that's a 20 right. year sentence. Right. Yeah. Right. And going um, back to your earlier point, that's why it's another reason why it's important to go after high level executives, because it has a deterrent effect that no going after the company can serve. Um, they, they, if you are someone who uh, is faced with uh, the difficult decision, uh, gee, all my folks are committing what I now think of as a fraud. Should I stop the music? Should I turn them in? Or should I go along with it? And you hear that uh, John Jones got a year uh, for failing to stop the music. Uh, that, I think, is much greater deterrent than when you read in the paper that John Jones' company paid a billion-dollar fine. Right. No, that, that's certainly true. Um, I, I want to talk real quick. This, this, I don't think you discussed this in your book. If you, if you did, I missed it. But I, I think this is just so wonderful, which is when you sat um, by designation on the Ninth Circuit on the Salman case, and, and uh, you created a split with the Second Circuit on insider trading, uh, and what was required, and and you ended up being vindicated in the Supreme Court. So, so you got you got some payback uh, with the Second Circuit. Can you tell us about that? Well, first of all, I, of of course, uh, I have the greatest respect for the Second Circuit. Uh, uh, do you hear that, bosses? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, I was very privileged. The Ninth Circuit has been kind enough to invite me to sit there on a number of occasions, and. This was totally a fluke. The, the, the Newman case had come down the Second Circuit, making it much more difficult to go after uh, insider traders, and more to the point, in, in my view, going well beyond what the law required, um, and um, really uh, making uh, criminal law, which is something that judges are not supposed to do. And... Um, uh, and then I was sitting there in the Ninth Circuit, and lo and behold, the same issue came up, and it was it was totally uh, a fluke. Uh, and the chief judge of the panel I was sitting on uh, asked me to write the opinion. Um, I wasn't unhappy about that, but uh, <laughs> uh, and it did create a split, and it went to the Supreme Court, and uh, they affirmed my opinion and rejected the Second Circuit's opinion, uh, eight to zero. 
And my only regret is there was one vacancy on the court because I wanted ninth <laughs> zero. <laughs> now, now you need to get on the ninth circuit when they have a death penalty case come up and uh, and, and, there, and get vindication yeah, there the, as well. We'll see what it'll be like when the Supreme Court reverses that opinion nine to zero. <laughs> <laughs> so, so th- this has been really wonderful, Judge. I, I I enjoy speaking about these issues, and it's great to have you on. I want to talk about one last thing before we sign off, which is you've talked about music and dancing. Your hobby is ballroom dancing. And and I find that wonderful. So so tell us about that. You're a ballroom dancer? So this began about 15 years ago when uh, we were, my oldest daughter was getting married. And my wife said to me, you know, they'll ask the parents of the bride to do a dance. Uh, And I said, yeah. And she said, are you going to embarrass me again with your dancing? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. (laughs) My wife is not always subtle. Uh, And uh, so I said, all right, all right. We'll take a couple of lessons. And then I really got into it. And uh, one of the reasons I got into it is that I have, uh, such a beautiful partner in my wife. So, um, so we now go dancing, or even during this the pandemic, we've been doing remote dancing twice a week. Um, Wonderful, and uh, we enjoy it greatly. I recommend it highly. Um, the uh, um, we're working right now on the Argentine tango, which is uh, a, a very difficult dance for the woman and not so difficult for the man, so I like that. But the main thing, as with all tangos, is the woman has to give the uh, her male partner a look of utter disdain. <laughs> and my wife has mastered that completely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when they get uh, Dancing with the Stars, the judges edition, we, we got to get you on, on the there show. We, there we go. <laughs> now you're talking about my life tree. But <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'll, I'll tie it up um, with one quick story. I had a trial um, from the 2008 era. It was, it was, of course, brought like nine years later, right before the statute ran um, for a woman charged with mortgage fraud. She had the courage to go to trial. Um, she is a ballroom dancer in her spare time. And she went to trial and won. And she uh, sends me pictures from ballroom dancing uh, from time to time. So we have ballroom dancing, mortgage fraud trials, uh, everything wrapped into one. So I thought I'd tell you that. Uh, that no, I, I, I think you need to, to you know, uh, uh, expand your, your horizons and start some ballroom dancing. <laughs> I might have to. I have two left feet, but, uh, uh, you know, if, if in my spare time, I'll need to try it out. The, the, I had two left feet, but uh, it can still be done. <laughs> Judge, thank you so much for doing this. I, uh, I really loved it and learned a lot, and I appreciate you taking the time with us. It was totally my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Well, I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode as much as I did. It's so interesting to me to speak to a judge and hear the perspective of a federal judge on sentencing, on innocent people pleading guilty, on the death penalty, and so on. There's so much more in his book. You should check it out. I'm in the process of planning season three now. So if you liked season one and two and liked the bonus episode, make sure you leave a review, subscribe so we can get that in as much as we can. 
to get momentum for season three. I also appreciate your feedback, your comments. Email me at dmarcus at marcuslaw.com. And we'll catch you in a few months for season three and for the defense. I look forward to it. Thanks so much for listening.